noticed that I got new glasses this past week. So my beloved optometrist, Mike Costura, went out and uh, I was picking out glasses, and I picked out a few, and I showed it to him, and he looked at the glasses and looked at me, and I could sense disapproval. <laughs> I, I, could sense, uh, I could sense what he was thinking. He was thinking, uh, you know, dull, homey, you know, plain. And so he wanted to go for an edgy look, and he picked out this pair for me. So I showed it to my wife, and she said, very edgy. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know if edgy is a good look for the pastor, but I trust my commentaries and hope that <laughs> don't be too distracted. Anyway, uh, 1988, I, freshman year in college, I was at home with my dad, and we got a, fo- a phone call from my relatives in Korea. Very rare that they call us. Something must have happened. And they're telling us over the phone how they got a, a letter from the South Korean government and from the South Korean uh, armed forces, the military, calling me to report for duty. <laughs> so in South Korea, compulsory service, Every male over the age of 18 must serve two years, mandatory for all, all guys. So for a few seconds there, for a few seconds, my heart kind of sunk, right? Because in you know, South Korea, it's no joke. I mean, uh, I mean, they yell at you. They scream at you. They'll, they'll punish you. They'll make you, like, hold things up in the air, like heavy things. They'll, they'll literally slap you and physically hurt you. And that's in preschool, right? <laughs> that's like, so imagine the, the, the army, right? No joke. And I'm, I'm Americanized. I'm a, I'm a softie. I'm not, you know, I, can't, I can't handle that. Um, but then just a few seconds, and, that, and then my dad was telling them, no, like James was born in the States. He's a U.S. citizen. He's not bound by the laws of South Korea. You know, we'll mail over his birth certificate and, and you know, his uh, high school diploma <laughs> so that he won't have to serve. And so I was like, for a few seconds, and I got myself back, and praise God, I didn't have to serve. Um, well, what if I had forgotten that truth? What if my dad forgot that I was born in the States? What if all my relatives forgot, and I actually went to Korea and served for two years? Uh, and then after the two years, I remembered I didn't need to go through basic training. I didn't need to do the calisthenics. I didn't need to go through all the heartaches of being in the military because I'm a U.S. citizen. That would have been um, very, very, very sad uh, if that were to have happened. Well, this happens to Christians all the time. This happens to me. This happens to you. Every day, all of us gravitate automatically towards this assumption, not that we're citizens of South Korea, but, but that we are citizens under the law. Every morning we wake up with this assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification. We begin each day with our personal security resting not on the love of God for us through Christ, but on our present achievements or our present emotions in the Christian life. So we do a mental like checklist of how we did the day before, 
and how we feel. And if we fail to obey, if we fail to think right thoughts and do the right things, or if we failed in resisting temptation, then we, uh, our hearts are brought low. We're filled with terror and anxiety and guilt and shame. Uh, or if we did and somehow uh, succeed in our Christian life, then our hearts are puffed up in pride. Um, this is the reality for so many Christians. Um, we are either moved to either discouragement and apathy, where we feel like just complete failures, complete losers, or the other end of the spectrum, uh, self-righteousness and just real self-confidence and judging others. This is why uh, the gospel is so essential for Christians. That is why you know, we need the gospel not just for missions work. We need the gospel not just for great things like, I don't know, leading people to Christ or preaching or, or leading major events. We need God's grace. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the power that comes through faith in Christ every single day for everything we do in our lives. For without the gospel, it leads us either to uh, self-condemnation or, or self-worship. The gospel is this important message because um, it proclaims to us this liberty, proclaims to us this freedom from the law that is in our hearts all the time. That's why uh, so many of you have said that we love the church because here we come to church and we can rest. Why is it that we can rest? Because in the church, we hear the gospel. Among Christians, we hear grace. We hear Christ. Apart from the church, when you're alone or when you're at work, when you're at home with your kids, what you hear in our hearts is accusation. The law, it threatens us. It accuses us. It condemns us. We hear that constantly. It is a... Uh, an innate reality, and yet the church is the only place where we come and we listen and we hear the gospel of Christ, the proclamation of what God has done, our, our, our justification, right? our, our regeneration, our, our adoption, our future promise of glorification is proclaimed in the church. That's why our hearts are at rest in the church. So important for us. And the gospel has indeed uh, set us free. Liberated us from the, the threats and accusations of the law, from the judgments and condemnation and the power of the law, of the law over us, because Christ has fulfilled the law. The book of Hebrews says he is the end of the law. We are no longer under this uh, old covenant. We talked about this last week. We talked about how then shall we live. We are not to uh, do away with the law in terms of uh, the law in Christ. We are not to go back to the law and uh, bind ourselves to all the commands of the Old Testament. As Christians, we have been set free. Romans 6.14, Romans 8.1 and 2, 
Galatians 5, 13 and 14. We have been set free by Christ, and now we are under the law of Christ. Now, the law is a strong word there, and uh, a better word that we can use might be um, guidelines or code or the reality of Christ. And law has this idea of externally oppressive, authoritative, binding with, with consequences. But that's not our relationship with Jesus Christ. He doesn't give us uh, commands and threaten us. He doesn't delineate consequences for disobedience and somehow externally try to modify our behavior. That's not our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a love relationship. It's wholly different. Uh, so, th- so that's the idea here. We are free from the Old Testament law, but we are under the reality, the code, the guidelines, even the law of Jesus Christ. Now, there's so much here. Um, this, I, this truth about our reality, the reality that we are in Christ, and all the governing imperatives for Christians. There's so much here. I, I cannot unpackage this today. It is not right for me to, because that's not the text for this morning. Our text is 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. We will tackle that in another time, what this all means, the law of Christ. What we want to focus on because of our text is, how are we to minister in light of this truth, that we are not under the law, but we're under grace? How does this affect our ministry how is this to inform our teaching and our preaching, how we uh, lead and serve the church? Um, Paul tells Timothy, and that way, through that, he tells us, if you'd open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now again, how do we minister? How do we preach and teach in light of the new covenant? The reality is many teachers fail to distinguish between these two realities, that we are no longer under the law, but that we are under Christ. And so teachers who fail to see this distinction, what they do is they revert back to legal preaching. They preach the law to Christians who are already alarmed by their sinfulness. And in this way, burden them in this way, um, add weight to their already weary hearts. Uh, this is uh, especially cruel. And I think uh, many of us have experienced something akin to this as we heard legal preaching. I was given a book by Jason a few months ago, uh, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life by, Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace. And the 400-page book, I'm about halfway through, and I am loving literally every page of this book. I mean, so helpful 
in terms of the gospel and how it relates to the Christian life and the church ministry. And he said something that was, uh, you know, something that was quite profound and, and radical. He, he talked about uh, the profound insecurity of most Christians. Let me read to you what he said. Christians who are not sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians, because they have too much light to rest easily under the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. So he's saying Christians who have lost sight of God's love for them are radically insecure because they're reminded through preaching and through their Christian fellowship of God's holiness and their sinfulness. And this produces in them uh, timidity, anxiety, insecurity, uh, beyond measure. Uh, and the reality of their constant failures is just a just compounds this insecurity. And I think he's right. Non-Christians are far more secure, spiritually speaking. And uh, if you want to have a vivid illustration of this is, if you have children, just look at your children. I mean, they are so confident of their righteousness. They are so confident about justice and what is fair and what is right. They're blind to their sins. They don't know God. And because of that, they're spiritually confident. And the Christians, under preaching of the law, preaching under the preaching that is dominated by the law, is um, overwhelmed by insecurity. And this insecurity has a strange but understandable result. Lovelace continues: their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. So this insecurity comes out, not an insecurity, it comes out in pride, in defensiveness, criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to compensate, to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They have all this Vent-up anger. I think Michelle Tan said it best a few weeks ago when she said she hated being a Christian. She hated being a Christian because it caused so much anger in her heart and it comes out in these ways. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. So this is a reality for individual Christians and then the whole church is um, ensnared in this. The church becomes very angry and very critical, very judgmental, all out of insecurity, and it, it, it shows itself in frayed relationships. Relationships are not based on love and mercy and grace. They're based on achievements, so relationships are, are hardened and frayed, and, and, and there's this unity, and this anger boils over to uh, other churches, other Christians, and of course, to this world. So Paul did not employ this kind of uh, 
preaching methodology. He did not, uh, his preaching was not dominated by the law. He wasn't a, a preacher of the law of God. He was, in fact, the opposite. He was adamantly opposed to the law. So wherever he went, he fought those who tried to add the law to the Christian life. You see this in the book of Acts. You see this in the book of Galatians and Philippians. Anyone who dared to add uh, obedience or, 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 or requirements to faith in Christ, he had uh, nothing but stinging rebuke uh, toward them. So this made Paul look like antinomian. Uh, he was against the law, and, and this is um, the other side of the spectrum where a lot of teachers kind of lose their way. So they know, yeah, I want to preach the gospel. I don't want to preach the law. So what they do is they get drunk with the gospel, and they preach a compromised gospel that is all about grace, all about freedom and liberty, and so in that way, they pervert the gospel. The gospel that they're preaching is a gospel of uh, cheap grace, of easy believism. It's a message that separates God's holiness and our lives, where it doesn't, you know, how we live our lives, our decisions, our behavior, our conduct, our, how we live our lives has no bearing on our faith. And in that way, uh, they go astray. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has this great chapter on cheap grace. That's what he was fighting in, uh, in, in Germany as well, where so many were, were silent to the atrocities that were committed by uh, the Third Reich of Nazi Germany. And the Protestant church at large, there were definitely individual Christians who spoke out, who suffered, who harbored Jews and protected them. I think just in Poland alone, 50,000 Jews were saved by Protestant Christians. But the church as an institution was silent. Um, and so he talked about this cheap grace. I, many of you heard this quote uh, many times, but let me just read it to you for your, to, to be reminded. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like housewares. It is grace of cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without conf confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, grace without God living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow it calls us to deny ourselves and follow Jesus Christ. So we see in church history, uh, so many um, even well-meaning Christians and teachers have gone astray. And Paul, though, clearly uh, outlines for us biblical ministry, how we are to minister in light of the fact that we are set free from the law and we're, in the, and we're under grace. 
Paul's um, example set for us is that we must do both. Right? We do both. We are to minister and preach and proclaim the gospel and then gospel application. Preach the gospel and the direct results of the gospel and the commands that flow from the gospel. You leave out either one and you have profoundly compromised the gospel of God's grace to the point where what you're preaching is um, a heteros gospel, heteros doctrine. It is a a cursed gospel because you are accursed, the one who is propagating this message. The true gospel preacher preaches both the gospel and gospel application. And uh, just to show that 2 Timothy 4.2 is not an anomaly, it's not an exception to the rule. You know, put your finger on 2 Timothy, but with your other finger, your other hand, turn to Colossians 1, 28 and 29, and just show you from, the, from those two verses, passages, how this was Paul's um, MO, this was Paul's philosophy of ministry, this was what Paul did throughout his life. 2 Timothy 4 is not an exception. Uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him we proclaim. So Paul begins, he preaches the gospel first. His message is proclaiming Jesus Christ, not facts, not ideas, not just pithy statements, but the person and the work, the reality of Jesus Christ. That was his message. And then in 2 Timothy, he preached the word, he preached the gospel, gospel message. And then Colossians 1.28 continues, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So having preached the gospel, and with the gospel, what does he do? He admonished every single Christian. He admonished them, he warned them, he exhorted them, he charged them to live a life worthy of Christ. In 2 Timothy 4.2, likewise, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and instruction. And when, um, when any uh, preacher, any pastor does this, when he preaches the whole gospel, and then in verse 29, we see Paul suffering there, right? Uh, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the third component we'll talk about next week. In 2 Timothy 4, we see it in verse 2, in season and out of season. This idea of persevering. Year in and year out, you're suffering, you're waiting, you're toiling in the field, you're preaching the gospel. When there is fruit, when there is no fruit, when there is response from people and there is zero response, you continue to preach the gospel. You do these three components. Then what's the result? The result is um, everyone is mature in Christ. That's the purpose and that's the result of gospel preaching. Tatalion, the idea of being complete. And that is, um, that's God's goal for you, and that's God's goal for me. I know our goal is lower. Our goal is like, oh, this is good enough. You know, I'm an okay Christian. I've got a lot of just, you know, sinfulness and weaknesses and just in areas of my life that's not honoring to the Lord. But Lord, I'm good, right? Why don't we just like, you know, just coast the rest of the way through and let me live a comfortable life, 
and I'll die, and then I'll be, you know, I'll glorify you by, by holiness. But until then, just let me rest in my mediocrity. Well, that, that might be, you know, at times that is my goal, right? And at, at times that is your goal. But that is not the goal of the Holy Spirit, and that must not be the goal of the preacher and teacher. The minister's goal must align, be aligned with the goal of the Holy Spirit, which is to present every single Christian complete in Christ, where every area of their lives is submitted to the high and holy standards of the Scriptures. So, you know, the elder's goal, Dan's goal, my goal is not for you to just simply attend the church. It's not for you to come three, to- three weeks out of the four in a month it's not for your baptism. It's not for you to be active in ministry. Oh, you're active in ministry. You're serving, you're leading. Oh, our job is done. All right? Our job is uh, never done. My job security is, you know, is, is unmoved. It's just, my, I'm, my job is secure. No matter what the economy is, there will always be a need of Christians being sanctified, need to be growing in sanctification. So uh, that is, uh, that is uh, clear in Scripture. So biblical preaching is not just preaching the gospel, and it's not just preaching the applications of the gospel, but it is preaching both. And um, let me qualify here. But as you do both, the center must be the gospel. The dominant message must be the gospel. And that is why Paul purposely put it first in Colossians 1 and in 2 Timothy 4. It's him we proclaim and preach the word, and the applications are subsumed under this dominant, um, dominant message of the gospel. Not only is the gospel center, it must be first. It must be gospel and then application. It must not be reversed. All right. So it must not be application and then the gospel, and it must not be application. Let me just sprinkle on some uh, cond- gospel condiment. You know, ketchup and mustard, salt and pepper, just sprinkle on the gospel on application. It must be gospel first and foremost. And I know in our hearts, we love applications. And it's been my experience over many years of preaching that you preach the gospel indicatives to Christians and they're kind of like, okay, you know, they kind of listen. But when it's the application time, when it's like five things you have to do to be a better husband or wife, right? Eight things to be a good worker, right? Ninety-seven things to do to be a good son or daughter. Everybody is like, I want this list. I don't want to miss out because this is how I'm going to grow. I know that's the reality for many of us, the reality for me, but the Bible is clear. The first and foremost message that we must listen intently is to the gospel message. Three reasons why. Three reasons why. The order of it, of the gospel first, affirms justification through faith alone. This order affirms this uh, doctrinal truth, this cardinal doctrine that we're justified not by works, but through faith. So in that way, it affirms that we are sanctified not through our works, but we are sanctified through faith. So you reverse that order, then you are 
inadvertently telling yourself that your sanctification is up to you and you're sanctified by what you do. And you're telling your listeners and you're causing them to be focused on themselves because you're telling them to be right with God, you need to do these things. And by doing that, you're undermining this this precious doctrine that we are made right before God, not by our works, not by any resident righteousness in us, but solely by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And the only thing that we do is have faith. And that faith is through faith. It's not our work. It is a gift that He has given to us. So He is the author and perfecter of our salvation, sanctification, and our glorification. And that's the and that's so important because this is what sets us apart from all the religions in the whole world. Right? All the religions say that faith plus good works equals salvation or sanctification. Every religion, including Scientology, says faith plus good works equals righteousness. Right? Positional and practical. Only the Bible teaches, only the Bible teaches that we are made righteous, that faith equals righteousness before God, which also results in good works. That if you wake up in the morning and you do quiet time, you drive to work and you listen to Christian radio or Christian music and you're praying, and during lunch break, you're meditating on scripture, you're memorizing, and you're talking to your co-workers about Christ, and after you come home, you wash dishes, you serve your wife, uh, you change your, you, you uh, change the diapers of your kids, or for your singles, I don't know. You change channels, I don't know. <laughs> you change something, right, to uh, Christian radio instead of like I don't know, bad radio. Um, when you do that, and this uh, it affirms that this is the fruit of the cross. So there's nothing to boast in. It's, it's what God is doing and what God has done, and not your work. So this this has it's a fundamental um, like it's it's so so essential such a significant point. You 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 go astray here, and you'll lead you down the path where you're running with uh, not just legalists or Christians, but you're running with non-Christians who are religious. But if you uh, proclaim Christ first, and you proclaim that to your heart first and to others, and you're running a good race, the race of faith. Secondly, um, you need to preach the gospel first because only the gospel can uh, get to the heart. Only the gospel can convict the heart. Only the gospel can uh, transform the heart. If you put the application first, Inevitably, what will result is behavior modification. Where what you will hear, even if you like sprinkle on as much ketchup and mustard as possible on the, the gospel ketchup, what you're left with is uh, the applications. And the result is you just try to just change externally and just redecorate your house, but there, your, your framework is corroded, your foundation is faulty, but you're just putting a new coat of paint. Right? And everybody else will say, wow, that's a great-looking house. Uh, but it will come crashing down one day because the foundation was, was faulty. The framework was, was rotted. 
you, you know, applications answers the question, ask the question, what questions, right? right? Applications, you know, what are you doing? What should you be doing? Right? What things to obey? The gospel, it does something different. It asks the heart. It goes to the heart and asks the why questions. So when, when you're the gospel to yourself, you go to Christ, you go to grace, and what Jesus asks is not, what are you going to do? He's asking you, you know, why are you doing it? He asks you the fundamental question, do you love me? Is it motivated by, what is it motivated by? Is it motivated by love for me or love for yourself? That's where, um, that's where true change happens at the level of the heart. Um, the gospel asks us, you know, why are you so angry? You know, why are you so uh, obsessed with your work? Why do you get so frustrated about your finances? Why are you so irritable? What's, why are you depressed? What is the reason for this depression? Or why are you so happy? Right. What is the reason behind your contentment or your excitement? So we need to get beyond the superficial understanding of, of obedience and get to the heart. Why do you steal? Why did you lie? Why are you fighting? Why are you gossiping? Not what are you fantasizing about, but why are you fantasizing about this? Why do you overwork? Why do you overeat? Why do you have sex outside of marriage? Why are you worried about what people think? Why are you failing as a parent, as a spouse, or an employee? Why, why, why? It, 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 the gospel forces us to go to the source of all our evil. Uh, Mark 7, 14-23, the Pharisees were all huffing and puffing about the disciples and what they were eating. And the Lord said, um, nothing outside a person makes a man unclean. Mark 7, 21, he said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the heart is the arena of spiritual warfare. It is the arena where we are to depend on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, works in our hearts. And this is the place where true change occurs. And this is the place where the gospel has power. This is the place where gospel has power. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the word of God, the gospel message you look at that context, the previous verse talks about Jesus Christ and the gospel. It is used synonymously in the book of Hebrews as well, for the gospel is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the soul, the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And the gospel, Christ, grace, the Holy Spirit, discerns the thoughts and the motivations of the heart. We are all exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And, uh, and so many this is why's today. Right? This is why 
our sanctification is not based on an accumulation of obediences. Our spiritual vitality, our spiritual life, our passion for Christ is not dependent on how many books we've read, how many retreats we've been to, you know, all the achievements, things that we've done in the past. Right now, your spiritual vitality is dependent on the Holy Spirit working in your heart right now to the gospel and whether you are repenting of the sin that you know about and whether you're mortifying that sin. You see, in legalism, you can rest on your laurels. Look at all that I have done for you, right? So I've done so much. I'm getting an A+. So even if I slack off, I'll still get an A or a B+. I'm okay. But no, the gospel works in our hearts. So it doesn't matter what we've done in the past. Our spiritual renewal right now, our vitality is dependent upon, there's a sin we know about that the Spirit is convicting us in our hearts, and we know about it. We don't have to search. We don't have to dig deep. We know the sin that the Spirit wants to mortify. And what is our heart response? If our response is to brush it under the rug, right, or to respond legalistically, okay, yeah, there's a sin in my life. Let me have this sin, but I'll go to church earlier. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll do Pebbles ministry. You know, I'll, I'll, do, I'll go to missions. I'll do all these things, then there is uh, this deadness in your life, there is a, a burning out, there's a drudgery, there is uh, anxiety and depression. Like Christian life is like a treadmill. There is no spiritual power. But if the gospel is convicting you and you know it and you repent, you could be a brand new Christian. Uh, you, could, you could have accepted Christ two hours ago. And you're more filled with spiritual life than the person sitting next to you who's been a Christian for 30 years. And yet he or she is not repenting of sin. That's why we must do both. And the gospel must be dominant and and first and foremost because it is only the gospel that gets to our hearts and convicts us in that way. And then finally, of course, because the gospel alone is the true powerful holiness, we can't fulfill the applications of the gospel. The applications become oppressive to us. It becomes a, a burden. It, be, it, it atrophies our, our faith, our hearts, if we're not focused on the gospel, because the gospel is what enables us to obey the applications. Lee Irons said this, the paradox of grace <clears throat> is that genuine progress in personal moral righteousness is possible precisely because we have been delivered from the law. That's the paradox of grace. By being delivered from the law, by being delivered from uh, the commands of Scripture, now we are able to grow in our holiness, in our moral standing before God. So this is what Paul is doing in 2 Timothy 4.2. He preaches the gospel. He calls to preach the gospel, suffer for the gospel, and then he does gospel application. And so now I want to just um, highlight to you Paul's example of him doing this, of Paul reproving believers with the gospel, Paul rebuking believers with the gospel, and Paul exhorting believers with the gospel. See, for Timothy, he didn't need all these explanations because Timothy had been with him for over 30 years. 
So Timothy saw for himself Paul reproving with the gospel, rebuking and exhorting. But for us, we need to be careful. We can't just take those words out of context. We need to be reminded of Paul actually doing this. So let's look at the first example of Paul reproving with the gospel. What does it mean, reprove? In the the Greek, it means to uh, convict someone. It means to convince someone of their sins. To expose and to shame that person. Make it a reality for that person. The thing about sin is we don't see it as sin. So we need the Holy Spirit, we need the, the gospel, we need the word to show us that it is sinful before God. And the preacher, as he preaches the gospel, must do that. He must preach the gospel and then show people through the gospel that they are uh, sinning against God. Paul uh, did this in the, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6. If you would turn there, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, and he tackles uh, sexual sin. There is a tendency for us to approach sexual sin on a very superficial level. Using uh, warnings and threats, if you commit sexual sin, you will destroy your family, destroy your spouse, destroy your children, your Christian testimony, you'll become a mockery in the church, so you need to avoid sexual sin and, and stay away from immoral women or men, and you must turn off the internet and turn off the TV and, and cloister yourself around just uh, Christian things and approach this um, grave sin in a very superficial way. Paul does not do this. He calls them to flee from sexual immorality. And he highlights uh, the, the gravity of the sin. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's a mark on his, on his, on his life, on his, on his flesh, on his character. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. This is within you, that's singular. So each one of us, the Holy Spirit resides in our bodies, and we are not our own. And in verse 20, you are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. He charges believers in Corinth to abstain from sexual sin, And the reason is because Christians, we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. We've been ransomed by Christ's life. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. Therefore, the reason we obey, the reason we abstain from sexual sin, is not because of any impending doom or awful consequence that results but because of the reality of our salvation because the price that was paid for God to save us and rescue us in light of that that great price we are to obey Christ so what does he do he 
elevates this sexual sin. When we sin against God in this way, it is spiritual adultery. It is, uh, we're depreciating the gospel. We're making light of the cross. We are spurning God's love, his kindness, his mercy towards us. We're not just breaking his commandments. We're breaking his heart because we're trampling underfoot the cross of Christ because of our lust for sin. And so he exposes, it's not just external physical sin. It is spiritual adultery. It is idolatry. It is a violation of the first commandment of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Therefore, repent and flee from sexual immorality. So gospel application and gospel charging is so much more powerful than anything the law can do. He goes on to rebuke. Rebuking people. It means to admonish strongly. It is the idea of uh, charging someone, forbidding someone, denouncing. It's almost commanding someone to stop. It's ordering someone with the gospel. And we see this modeled by Paul in Galatians 2. You would turn there, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. A very important passage of scripture. Here is uh, you know, Apostle Peter, the spokesperson for the apostles. And uh, he had a vision where God brought down all these unclean animals. And in Acts 10, God said, no, they're all clean. And through that vision, God told Peter to welcome Gentiles into the church. And so Peter himself saw firsthand in Acts 10, Gentiles speaking in tongues as a sign that they were accepted by God. The Holy Spirit was indwelling in Gentiles as well. Here we are in Galatia several years later. And Peter, though he had walked and fellowshiped and ministered with Gentile believers, when the Judaizers came, he separated himself. And he would not eat and have communion meal with Gentile Christians. And he sided with Judaizers, those who wanted to add to the gospel Old Testament laws. And so this is Paul's response. Verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, take note of that. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, he publicly rebuked him. 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here Paul is calling out Peter for his, um, his racism, for his uh, undermining of the gospel, for his legalism, and he censures Peter publicly and rebukes him. And it is not based on the law. It is not based on certain moral standard, how we should be treat everybody equally. We shouldn't be racist. We should love everyone. Now, what he appeals to is the gospel. Because of the gospel, God has joined everyone in Christ. Galatians 3.28, there are no Jew, Gentile, right? barbarian, Scythian, male, female, slave, or free. We are all one in Christ. And yet when anyone divides the church based upon race or gender, social class, that is a sin to be dealt with, not because of the law, but because when you do that, it undermines the gospel, undermines what Christ has accomplished at the cross. So he, Peter, the apostle, Paul rebukes publicly because he was undermining the gospel. And that's part of our preaching ministry. That's application of the gospel. Third and final one. Let's go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 25. Um, so I'll, we'll use this, and it applies to everyone, but we use husband and wife relationship because that's what Paul uses. And if you've been to Cornerstone Weddings, you've heard this preached many times. And we just want to highlight how Paul exhorts with the gospel. He exhorts here, husbands, to love your wives. Right. Husbands, love your wives. Because husbands were so prone to be so prideful and self-centered. We struggle to love our wives. It's easy for us to love ourselves. We struggle to love our wives. So husbands, love your wives. And why? How does Paul exhort husbands? What is the motivation? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, with the gospel, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul is telling husbands, consider the love of Christ and how Christ has loved the church of which you are a part of. Husbands, consider Christ's love for you. You are part of the church. And consider what Christ has done for you. He washed you with the gospel along with your wife to present you holy, blameless, without blemish, without wrinkle before God. And he has given that to you right now through faith. That as God looks at you husbands, he doesn't see our failures as husbands. He doesn't see how selfish we are, how proud we are, how self-centered we are. What he sees is we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and we are clean, we are holy before God. This is what God has done for us as husbands. And that's how he has shown us his love. And that is the motivation, that is the reason why Paul exhorts husbands to love wives. 
because of what God has done for us in Christ. That is powerful. Right? That ought to, this changes hearts for husbands. Right? More rules and regulations only exasperate us, only provoke us. It makes us even feel more, more, more failures than we already believe we are. But gospel exhortation uh, gives us hope, gives us uh, strength. It's powerful to motivate husbands to love our wives. And that applies to every relationship, wife to husband, parents to children, to in-laws, to neighbors, to friends, to co-workers. When we struggle with loving others, we're to go back to the gospel and be reminded of what God has given to us through his son. Paul has that prepositional phrase in, in verse 2 with complete patience. Where does that patience come from? I mean, I've got a lot of verses here, but I'll just highlight to you one verse. Paul said, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, where he said, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So how can we be patient with those who are ministering to you? How can we be patient with others and in their, in their sins and their disobedience. We look at the gospel, and in the gospel, we are told of God's perfect patience with us. An infinitely holy God was patient with sinners as us, though he should have judged us at, the, at our first heartbeat, as, a, as our first breath for our rebellion against his, his, his rule and reign. He was patient with us. And all those years where he refused to submit to the gospel, he was patient with us. So in light of that great patience, we minister to others with complete patience and instruction. So we teach them the word of God. We give them information. Right? So much of Christians is sin of ignorance. They don't know. Right? They just... They don't know. They, their eyes aren't opened to these truths. Right? They're sinning in ways where it's a sin of ignorance. They have blind spots. So we need to teach them the word of God. Teach them with the wisdom of the scriptures uh, that they might repent and turn to Christ. Application time. This might thrill you guys. Right? Um, four final thoughts to close our time. Marks of a qualified teacher of God's word. So we all, want, we all should aspire to be expert teachers of the, of the Word of God, of the Gospel, of the Scriptures. So some marks of an, uh, an able teacher, they understand the law-grace dynamic. They, can, they, they see the difference between law and grace in the Scriptures. And they understand, their belief, they believe, and they're committed to preaching the Gospel and Gospel application. And they're devoted to doing both. And the first person they, they, they preach this message to is themselves. Right? They preach the gospel to themselves, 
But it's not an antinomianism. It's not cheap grace. It's not a, a liberty and freedom only gospel where they use as a license to sin. They preach the gospel as a dominant truth, but they couple it with gospel application. And they reprove, they, they, through the Holy Spirit, they expose their own sins of the heart. They rebuke sin when the heart is unruly. They exhort themselves to, to, to obey Christ. Out of the overflow of that, they minister to others. Another mark of an able teacher of the Word of God is that they are patient, they are sympathetic, they are tender-hearted because they know how, uh, how powerful our, our sinfulness is. They've experienced it for themselves. As they're ministering to, to you or they're preaching to you, they're sympathetic. They are broken-hearted. At the same time, they're courageous. They are firm. They're resolute. They are strong. They don't cater to the whims of others. They don't care to the felt needs or the, the culture of the day. They stand with the scriptures and they, in season and out of season, they persevere in preaching the gospel and gospel application. Secondly, is uh, one look at sin and ten looks at Christ. You know, for yourself and for others, I hope God has given you grace to understand uh, how profoundly insecure we are before God. How profoundly insecure and how that causes so much anxiety and anger and frustration and judgmentalism and a critical spirit. Uh, T.S. Eliot said that human beings cannot bear very much reality. So one law just overwhelms us. So one look at sin, it's so discouraging. We despair. We are, we are prone to uh, lose heart prone to a worldly sorrow and not godly sorrow. So we must constantly, um, in our own hearts and to others, massage our hearts with the gospel as we preach application to us and to others. Right, so to our own hearts, one look at sin, one look at application, ten looks at Christ. And as we're, as a brother or sister in your care group, and you're rebuking them, you are reproving them, you're exhorting them, Understand the profound insecurity. So with every exhortation, every reproof, every rebuke, massage their hearts with the gospel. Remind, their, remind them of God's love for them in Christ. How God has justified them before Christ through imputed righteousness. How they're adopted into God's family. Future glory in Christ where this sin will be overcome. That he or she will one day experience victory in this area of habitual sin because they will stand before God and shall sin no more. I promised you three, but I'll just, lack of time, just have three for you. Final one is, uh, maybe your heart is, you know, I don't need the gospel. Just give me applications. Just give me the law. I am just a strong Christian. I don't need to be reminded of these truths. 
I just need to know what I need to do to mature as a Christian. And yet, you are abounding in your hearts and your relationships with all these fruits of uh, having a critical spirit, being having a short temper with others, filled with insecurity and anxiety. Today is for you, and our communion time is for you. Where before communion, you can't come with any of your um, works or achievements and bring, bring that to the table. In the Lord's Supper, you must and I must come as spiritual beggars, destitute of, and bankrupt, devoid of any righteousness before God. And he comes and he provides this meal, he provides this feast, and the bread and cup this morning is a physical reminder of the spiritual truth that salvation is of the Lord. That we are mere recipients. It's a totally a passive experience. And that he desires to show his glory in your life by saving you and sanctifying you and transforming you to be more like Christ. And communion forces us to grapple with this reality where we can only eat and drink. As we partake of the elements this morning, may God grant us this heart, a heart where we're helpless and we're completely dependent upon Christ. And through faith in Him, we see Him, we experience Him, Make the cross a reality. Make such a reality in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, many years ago, the Lord instituted this ordinance, a lasting ordinance that is to be practiced until your return. It is the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf. It reminds us of the cross of your, of your son. And the cup is a, is a sign of the new covenant and how you shed your blood. You didn't give a portion of your blood, but you gave your life completely so that our sins might be forgiven and as uh, forgiven sinners, we might have a relationship with you being adopted into your family. God, we pray that as we partake of the bread and the cup, it would indeed be a means of grace as we apply our faith to it. And through our faith, the cross becomes a reality to us. The cross, it would be like our Lord died yesterday. Not years ago in some foreign country, but he died yesterday. And we just got saved. And all the spiritual blessings are here.
through faith. May that be a reality for us as we partake together. And may this be a means of grace to our, 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 each believer, granting them spiritual renewal, vitality, and, and, and vigor in our hearts. May you give us strength to repent of the sin that we know about, the sin that you're convicting us, the sin that you're bringing to the forefront of our minds. May we not turn away from the cross and turn a blind eye to this sin. May we, with the power of the gospel given to us today, Lord, stand up, stand up against it and, and, and put it to death. Repent of it. Acknowledge it before you. Confess before your holy eyes our awful sins. And Lord, may you do the work of, 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 of mortifying this in our hearts and granting us a true freedom in Christ. And we thank you and we commit this holy hour to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.